We have a really special guest for our Tick Bootcamp listeners today. We are here with Dr. Jill Carnahan. Welcome, Dr. Carnahan. Thank you so much for having me. Before we go into your background, Dr. Carnahan, I want to take a moment to recognize that we have Michelle McKeon back from episode 141 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast titled Balancing Pathways, who is a MCAS and mold specialist. And we thought this would be a perfect overlap with her background and your expertise, Dr. Carnahan, to really bring these two worlds together to geek out with our community. So, Michelle, do you want to quickly say hello? Hi, everyone. Very excited to be here and be talking with Dr. Carnahan. And for those of you who don't know Dr. Carnahan, she is a Lyme specialist out of Colorado. Dr. Carnahan is also the founder and medical director of Flatiron Functional Medicine. She's also been featured in a ton of media outlets like Forbes, NBC, Huffington Post, and so many more. And I had the unique pleasure of getting a pre-release of her book, Finding Resilience Through Functional Medicine, Science, and Faith, Unexpected. And this book touched me so much, Dr. Carnahan. I mean, I, I cried. I was with you. I felt like I was there with you growing up. And then I felt like I learned with you. And I just, I, it was such a powerful book that really drew me in. So I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy it and read it, because not only did I learn about ways to help heal myself for all types of holistic functional medicine, but it was just a really enjoyable book. So thank you for putting this out there in the world, Dr. Carnahan. Matt, thank you for those words. You know, if I realized years ago, my publisher was like, you can't write a memoir unless you're really, really famous. And I'm not right. But I like had this like on my heart, like story is the glue that connects us. And even you telling stories on your podcast and you, Michelle, and story is where it's at. Because when we hear story of other people, we're like, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. And so I knew I had to write it in the story form. But when I keep hearing feedback about how people, you know, I literally, I, I my hope and, and desire was that someone would feel like, you know, this great box of chocolates and it would be like, like this delicious or coffee with Jill, you know, like that. So when you say that, that means a lot. Uh, that feedback means a lot. <laughs> yes. Well, mission accomplished. I tell you, and Rich will tell you, I don't read many of the books in the Lyme community, but yours, once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. It was just filled with so much good information and laughter and sadness. And I mean, just relatable, right? But we're going to we're going to get into that. We're going to geek out over some of the topics you talked about in your book. But we're going to go all the way back to when you were a child. And Michelle's going to walk you through what life was like growing up on the farm and how that was some early signs there about your potential health conditions that at the time you didn't realize were going on. So I'm going to hand it off to Michelle. And if Dr. Karnan, you can talk to us about life as a child and what life was like on the farm. Yeah, I would love to hear more about your health journey. I know you talk about it in your book, but it kind of started earlier in life. So if you could tell us more about that, that'd be wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so my journey of uh, resilience in a toxic world, which is lately what I've been titling my talks, because that's what it's all about. Like how do we become resilient in a toxic world, right? Began on a 300 acre farm in central Illinois. I was born one of five children. I was the oldest girl, second oldest child. And, you know, you would think it's the most idyllic place in the world. I had a lovely family, um, a retired mother who, a nurse mother who was retired. And even though she was in the medical field, she was very holistic minded. So we had our own garden, like half acre garden. I remember so many of my memories are like planting peas and going out to eat strawberries in the garden and like fresh, organic, really good food. And then we had sweet corn at the edge of the cornfield. So we had, you know, every year people from miles around would come and get, you know, dozens and dozens of this uh, peaches and cream sweet corn from the University of Illinois. Like it was really, really good stuff. So all this stuff on the farm and we had, you know, four wheelers and snowmobiles and it was, it was amazing childhood. You would think perfect. But as I came into my twenties and um, part of the story is in my twenties in medical school, which we'll probably talk about, I got diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer. I looked back and said, okay, why? Because the question with all of us, with our doctors, with ourselves is if we don't ask the question why and start to investigate what happened that led to our illness, that's where the um, difficulties, but also the, the 
mystery can be solved and we can actually go on to have health and thriving. Because if we just have a, a code that says we have this disease and we stop at that diagnosis and we don't say, well, what else is going on and why did this happen? So for me, the farm was, was my upbringing. And I said, well, what happened that could have led to me at 25 years old? We know that cancer cells start to develop 10 or 20 years before the actual diagnosis of a tumor. That's like a centimeter or two centimeters in size. So my thought was, okay, 25, that means like at five or 10 years old, this stuff started going wrong in my body, my breast, it was breast cancer and young women. And uh, typically the statistics show they do not get breast cancer. I was the first one at that age ever diagnosed at my medical school. I was in the middle of medical school. So it wow. just shows you how rare. And even further than that, I was in a group of young women under 40 um, that were all diagnosed with breast cancer. And I'm the only one still living. So it was a wow. deadly diagnosis. So back to the farm. So what happened, mm -hmm. right? Again, this beautiful place, but my dad in the seventies and eighties did like all the other farmers and he applied pesticides and herbicides and chemicals. We drank water out of a well. And so probably there was runoff of some of these chemicals. I remember probably five years after my diagnosis, I started looking into the chemicals and I knew the chemical toxicity and these both things like Roundup, like herbicides and mm -hmm. uh, organophosphates like atrazine and lasso and all these other kinds of chemicals um, had endocrine disrupting effects, meaning they affect hormone related cells in the body. They have hormone like effects. So I started to put it together and say, what in the world could there have been a connection? Well, I've came across the research on atrazine and literally I just presented, there's a study now in 2023 that shows direct link to atrazine and breast cancer in mice models. This is literally this year. And I haven't had that data prior to that, but prior to that, I saw um, Tyrone Hayes's work with the um, amphibian, they were amphibians and frogs that started to have no genitalia. So they had no wow. sex because of the effects of atrazine runoff. So we know right. years and decades that this atrazine has affected. And in one year after my diagnosis, 2002 in the European union, it was banned. And that's been basically 20 years, a little over it's been not allowed in Europe because of its harmful effects to the environment and to humans. Guess what? We still use it in Illinois. And my big aha was when I was doing the research, looking at maps in the US of use of atrazine. And I even called my dad and said, dad, is atrazine still used? He said, yeah, Jill, unfortunately, you know, it is. I look at the map though, right smack dab where I grew up in central Illinois was the hottest spot of red abuse of atrazine. And that was the day I was like, oh, this is all connected. And I'm going to make it my life work to talk about how the environment affects Lyme disease, illness, chronic illness, um, mass cell activation, all the things we're talking about. I think the elephant in the room is the environmental toxic load that's weighting down our immune systems. 100%. I feel like it's a toxic bucket. And so it seems like growing up, you were, even though it was farm and you're outdoors, you probably had glyphosate and some of the soil. And then possibly even mold mycotoxins, because it's not rare for mold to be in farms as well. I don't think you ever had Lyme disease, but I do notice a huge correlation with my clients with breast cancer and Lyme disease. Um, so it's just, yeah, it seems like an environmental toxic soup kind of built up and then possibly looking into genetics as well could be a uh, correlation for kind of like the perfect storm. Yeah. And Michelle, I don't talk a lot about this, but I haven't, I absolutely have had multiple positive. I have Borrelia, Bartonella, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. and Ehrlichia. And this is, I thought of all places, it's the place to talk about it. You it, hide it pretty well, Dr. Carnings. I just oh, some, yeah, I didn't, some hard I didn't stalking on you. I could not find that. So. Yeah. Well, you know, and let me just tell you, well, if I smile, you'll see if you now everybody who ever watches my podcast on a video, will see I have a crooked smile. I have a little bit of bells on this side because of the lime. But back when I was like, okay. five, 
we would go up to this raised timber. It was an Uncle Ray that had part of the farmland, but it was a timbers area in central Illinois. And we would pull off ticks every time we went. And I remember often having embedded ticks. So like I absolutely had exposures as a child. Mm-hmm. And then when I started looking and interesting, I talked to Dr. Horowitz personally about this. And he said some of the breast cancer has been associated with Bartonella. And I look at my it's a huge issue. Right. I- so you totally know that and probably both of you. So um, I put it together. I think it was absolutely a player. Again, I have so many other illnesses I've been through. I haven't focused a lot on the Lyme, but I 100% have had probably six or seven positive Lyme, Bartonella, um, Ehrlichia, and Babesia tests. So I absolutely have wow. part of the story too. <laughs> have you followed Dr. Shoppy's work with, with their breast cancer? She's actually at Yale right now for the summer, and she's about to release a paper at the end of the summer where she's citing the Borrelia miyamotai specifically being a trigger or a cause potentially of breast cancer. And she's studying this and she's proven it time and time again, and she's about to come publish it. So I think you kind of laid the groundwork for that. She's now proving it out in a study that she's about to publish. And there's other doctors too, like Dr. Har, what she said. So it's interesting that this is all coming together that, you know, there's this connection here. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So guess what? Miyamoti, which is tick-borne relapsing fever is the strain that I have. So this is absolutely 100%. And I've read some of that research, but probably not as deep as what you've, you know, but here's the interesting thing. And I'm just going to share this because I think it's so relevant to listeners as far as how deep Lyme goes to these other illnesses and diagnoses. So growing up on the farm, of course, in this, the um, silos in the areas where they store the corn, there is loads of mold. So even if there wasn't mold in my farmhouse where I grew up, which there Mm -hmm. probably was, we literally had a dirt cellar um, and we had a normal farmhouse. It wasn't like an old fat, like it was a normal house, but in Mm -hmm. part of the cellar was still dirt, still probably mold in the house. Second, in the grain bins where they stored the corn and soybeans, I mean, they'd always try to keep the moisture down, but it was a known fact that mold was absolutely growing on these grains. And I would get so sick and so allergic as a child to those grains. So there's the mold component. And then back to the tick component. So of course, 25 diagnosed breast cancer. I have Miyamoti. That's the strain that I have. I said Lyme to make it easy, but with your audience, I can be serious. I have tick-borne relapsing fever, which is of course Miyamoti. So, mm-hmm. um, so that piece, but here's the interesting thing. So chemotherapy, I had three drug chemotherapy, um, totally destroyed my gut. And one of the drugs in particular um, to treat the breast cancer called cytoxin causes leaky gut. One of its mechanisms of action is to create much more permeable gut. So you dump contents into the immune system and you get that immune reaction, which is negative in other um, you know, forms, but because that immune reaction can fight the cancer, that's how it's actually part of its mechanism. So six months after I finished complete treatment of radiation, chemotherapy, and multiple surgeries, I start getting cyclical fevers. And guess what? Chemo weakens immune system. So of course we know if I had the Lyme, which I think I did probably from four or five years old, my body was not in good shape. I guarantee the Lyme was starting to pop its head up, right? And the tick-borne relapsing fever, guess how my Crohn's presented? It was cyclical fevers. And guess oh, what? Bartonella, okay, that makes sense. right? We know granulomatous diseases are related to Bartonella. I believe my Crohn's was a combination of presentation of the Miyamoti and the Bartonella. Wow. Okay. So you're in medical school and you're realizing that you were just diagnosed with cancer. Um, You're going through treatment and how are you feeling about treatment? Were you asking about nutrition, other ways to get toxins out of your system with chemotherapy? Um, And then later when you got Crohn's disease, were you able to correlate that maybe there is a, uh, yeah, a combination of why this came about into an autoimmune condition? Yeah. So hindsight is everything, right? And I've literally spent my whole life because when I figure out these things for me, then there's patterns in our patients. And so Mm -hmm. I see often the patterns. So I definitely have spent a lot of time thinking about this. And what I surmise is I literally, 
I feel like probably in utero, I got exposed to endocrine disrupting chemicals in my mother's womb that started okay. the DNA disruption. I had multiple chemical SNPs um, related to glutathione and detox poor pathways. So you talk about toxic load and bucket. I had a very small bucket born with. So the toxic load of the farm chemicals and things, and then just toxic stress and things. Cause I was a highly sensitive person. I didn't know it. All that led to breast cancer 25. Okay. And then I decide, okay, what am I going to do? And I, despite going to allopathic, like conventional medical school, my heart was the heart of more of a naturopathic or holistic doctor, because we grew up with, you know, my mother as a nurse did you know, teas and herbal things first, she would take us to the doctor, but okay. she would also do natural things first. So when I get to cancer, all of a sudden, boom, Jill, you have breast cancer. What do I do? Right? Like I knew I was in for the battle of my life and I knew statistics where I was going to die. Like my statistics were not for me with this kind of aggressive breast cancer. So I had the choice, like, and my oncologist literally had meeting of the minds because they had never had that young of a person. And they put together literally the most aggressive regimen they could possibly come up with, with three drugs, the doses they dosed me were maximum amount of drug till my heart would stop beating. Like they, they loaded it up. And then here I am like thinking I want to be holistic. Right. But I also knew my life was on the line. This is the relevance for your listeners. We're often faced with these critical, such difficult decisions. And I had a medical background and it was so hard. And what I decided at the moment was I'm going to take all the information. I went to the library and studied and try to gather information, but I'm going to make a decision. And I'm never going to second guess that decision because I don't want to live a life of regret. And even if it causes like it has an immune deficiency since that time or damage since that time to my gut, I'm never going to say, what if I didn't do that or did do that? So in that moment, I took all the information I had and made the best decision. And what I chose was aggressive, three drug chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, the whole works. But what I decided to do was alongside that I took antioxidants, I took nutrients, I took supplements, I saw a naturopath, I saw a pastor, I had prayer, meditation, I had all these other things. And I knew that I was going to do both. And, and the chemo literally, like I said, created a leaky gut. Unbeknownst to me, I had silent celiac that had never been diagnosed, which probably contributed oh to the weakened immune system. I also had NOD2 genetic SNP, which makes me high risk for Crohn's. But like we said, I think these infections played into it as well. So you have chemo trashing my immune system, all of a sudden old infections like um, Miyamoto and Bartonella popping up, creating more inflammation, probably more granulomatous potential and, and even the fevers. And then within six months of me completing chemo, completing surgery, completing the breast cancer treatment, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So all of a sudden I'm faced with that. Wow. That's, that's incredible that you're able to kind of be presented with all of this and then really navigate it the way that you did so that your body would have the best chance in moving forward. Um, can I ask how the mold piece came into about how you started becoming interested in mold and realizing that it really hugely impacts your health? Yeah. And I want to say one more final thing about Crohn's because it's one of the most important things I learned. So I literally um, passed out one day in the ER while I'm doing medical rotations, woke up in surgery for an abscess and woke up to the surgeon saying, you know, Jill, this looks like Crohn's disease. So that's how I found out. And then I'm left with, okay, follow up with a gastroenterologist. Here's the plan, whatever. Here's an antibiotic for the abscess. And I go to the gastroenterologist the next week. And we're talking and he's like, okay, Jill, this is lifelong. There's no cure. You're going to probably need immune modulating drugs. You're going to probably need surgery, maybe multiple surgeries to remove part of your colon. Um, and, you know, right now let's do steroids. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I just got over an infection, steroids. And my last question before I left, and I was so sincere, I was like, doc, I want to do my part. Does diet have anything to do with this? Can I do anything to change my diet with Crohn's? He did not pause. He just said, Jill, diet has nothing to do with this. 
And this is where another point for your listeners. So often we think that the medical doctors have all the knowledge and that we're like, we have to listen because they're the authority. If your intuition, if your gut tells you different, you, you listen to your gut, you follow that intuition. For me, I was just a mere medical student and he was the doctor, but I knew that couldn't be right. And I went on a journey to prove him wrong. I fired him. I'd never went back. And I found within two weeks, I changed my diet very dramatically, took out gluten, took out inflammatory foods, found specific carbohydrate diet. Two weeks after that diet, my fevers were gone. My symptoms were controlled and I didn't heal in two weeks. It took more like two years. But today, 20 years later, I don't have crowns. It's not in remission. It's gone. We call it reversible autoimmunity. So I like to tell that story because it's worth thinking about when you are sitting in front of a doctor and they're medically gaslighting you, telling you, well, your labs look normal. You must be fine. And we know this in the Lyme world too, because it's such a misdiagnosis. Don't let, keep going, don't give up and trust your intuition, trust your gut, because you know your body better than anyone else, better than any doctor, but better than any authority. And I feel like that's so important to encourage patients to listen to themselves. Yeah. It seems like you were such an important advocate for yourself. And the other thing that I've noticed from listening to you speak at so many different function is that you're very, um, you're very intuitive. Um, and so it's just really impressive to see your analytical side, looking at the different pathways and figuring out, okay, what logistically makes sense. And then also listening to your gut and figuring out spiritually what's going to marry the two together so that it actually works not only for you, but for the patients that you're working with. Yeah. You know, and I love that you say that because that's literally, so I grew up this highly sensitive, probably very, very intuitive child that didn't know. You can find that Dr. Carnine at HSP because I had never heard of it until I read your book. I'm like, what is an HSP? And you described it very well, but I want to make sure our listeners truly understand what that means. Okay. So I, so I was born in HSP, didn't know it about 10 to 15% of the population. Elaine Aaron first wrote about it in her book, the highly sensitive person. And what's relevant is not only it's an emotional type and it's like, it's literally something you're born with. Um, now, mass selectivation, mold, Lyme, these things actually can play into it because they can make us even more sensitive. And I link it together in the book because I believe we have this, it's not really a personality type, but it's a prototype of your nervous system. And it's a nervous system that is going to be the, the, it's a blessing and a curse. I always said it was all curse, but there's blessing too. The curse part about it is you are extremely sensitive to your environment. If I'm in like a small, uh, like a, a mixer and I'm chit-chatting with people and it's more than like an hour or two, I get overwhelmed by the stimulus, by the people, by the talking, like an amusement park with the sights, the sounds, the smells, the heat, the noise, the uh, movement, way too much for my system. So all these things are like too stimulating because my system, like any HSP takes in data at an at a exponential rate at a much higher rate. So the good news is I see details that other people miss. I see little tiny things and details and sounds and sights. I see it all, but because I see and feel it all, my nervous system is like, whoa, this is way too much. And it, re it relates to like, again, sights and sounds and smells and too much heat and too much sound and to not enough sleep. Like everything affects me, everything, including chemicals. And this is where the other part about it is, I think the highly sensitive persons are those people who are more likely to develop mast cell activation or other things where we're chemically sensitive, we're sensitive to infections, we're sensitive to, and it's emotions too. So like I could tell if I walk into a room and someone's had an argument, I know it because I can feel that in my body, right? Or if my, my parents really never argued, they were got along very well. But if there's anything like even in the home where the siblings were fighting, or, you know, I go to office, if the office staff isn't in harmony, I feel it in my body and it really, really affects me. 
And so these are all characteristics and there's many, many more. They tend to be people who are very curious. They're very like, they're good problem solvers because they see these details. For me, the gift of it is when I'm sitting with a patient, I, if I'm really in tune and I sometimes can go into a flow state there when I'm listening to that patient, I can catch Dr. Detail. Kurt, I'm going to interrupt you again. I'm sorry, but the flow state, I'm sorry, that was so powerful. So I know you, I, I want you to finish what you're saying, but if you can also describe the flow state, because that blew me away too in your book. So many key points here. Got it. No. So this highly sense of gift part of it, for any of you listening out there, you're starting to recognize you're like, and even in a relationship, you need time alone. You need time to like recharge. Like I recharge alone. I love people. I'm super social. And I was, I was always like, well, I'm not really an introvert. But when I, I'm not an extrovert because I get overwhelmed with too many crowds and too many people and too much noise and too much conversation. So this is the this is the reason why. Um, and like I said, with patients, the the gift of it is if I'm sitting there and listening, I catch little details. I know what questions to ask. And there's a connection with the intuition because this highly sensitive trait is actually very, very in tuned and can often sense and feel things at a deeper level. And what I was taught was I was in this German analytical engineering family and I was taught to become this very analytical engineer. I went for undergrad bioengineering and I used that brain, right? That analytical mind. But then in, in medical school, it was taught basically don't ever trust your intuition. There's no value there. So we kind of put aside all that um, kind of feminine, um, intuitive, heart-based uh in, um, instruction. Mm -hmm. And we went for the analytical science and that's great. Right. But you need both. And I had to kind of relearn the value of my intuition, the value of my heart-based centered and the value of seeing with a patient, having a gut instinct of where to go and knowing literally almost hundred percent of the time it's right on and being able to trust that. And now I literally teach practitioners and patients, how do you meld those two? Because yeah. that's where the magic happens when you start to trust your heart. And like I said earlier with patients, if you're sitting with a doctor and they, they dismiss you, they gaslight you, you're like, huh, this doesn't feel right. Trust your intuition. You know yourself better than any professional. So that's the HSP. And yeah, then can I, I kind of give a quick teaser to the flow, because I, I actually highlight it in the book, because I just want to tease the audience. So, you know, uh, you said flow refers to those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. When you get so focused on the task at hand that everything else disappears, action and awareness merge, your sense of self vanishes, time passes strangely, and performance, performance just soars. Flow's impact on both our physical and mental abilities is considerable. On the physical side, strength, endurance, and muscle relaxation times all significantly increase while our sense of pain, ex exertion, and exhaustion all significantly decrease, right? And then you go on and you give you give the flow formula, which I'm not going to give to our, list, our listeners, but that's on page 136. If everybody buys your book, page 136, go read it. It's a really good formula or recipe for flow. So I'm sorry, if you want to go in more now, but it's just a really cool concept that you put in there. Yeah, Matt and Michelle, you're picking my very favorite things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm getting so excited. <laughs> I love flow and I want to relate it. I'll tell you what it is, but before I do, I want to say, Stephen Kotler, who is one of, so Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, which who was original Czech researcher that studied this, he was uh, in the Holocaust and he saw certain people were happy, even in the midst of horrific circumstances. And he started on this path to say, what makes certain people be able to be happy and full of joy, even in the midst of like the absolute worst thing any of us could imagine, which is being a you know survivor of Auschwitz or something like that. Frank, uh, Victor Frankl talks about this as well. Edith Eager. These are also my favorite authors. I'm like, how do these people survive in the midst of horrendous suffering and still maintain joy and hope and beauty? So, so that's where the flow research from Mahaili started. And what he saw was he saw these people 
where they could be, basically be so present and so in tune that they could um, surpass the physical suffering in their bodies and the phys and the mental um, issues. And then he started studying it. And so he put together flow research. And then Stephen Kotler lately has written a lot about it. He's the, he's the one I've been following and listening to. Stephen has his own journey. And I think Lyme is in the diagnosis, but he got very, very ill and he used flow to hack his health. And then again, there's more and more of the new documentary in the works right now about a brain injured woman who lost all of her memory from the age of 22 beyond, and she's using flow to, to hack her brain. So what is flow, right? What is this powerful thing? Flow is a state of, like you mentioned, things become completely timeless. We lose track of time. They're effortless. So instead of using, we call it, there's this word I love, it's transient hypofrontality. So what the heck is that? Seriously. <laughs> right? Transient means temporary, hypofrontality. So our frontal cortex is the judge. I call it the judge. It's the filter. It's the thing that when we're writing, we're like, oh, that's crap. Stop writing that. That's not no good. Or it might be our music. We're playing a song. We're like, oh, that's so bad. You know, don't play that anymore. Or we're trying to surf or we're trying to climb a mountain or we're trying to hike. And we're like, oh, I know I can't do it. It's, a, it's the running um, recording that tells us we're not good enough. It's not good. Whatever kinds of things, the negativity that's judging our actions transient hypofrontality, which is part of what gets us into flow, turns the judge off. So all of a sudden we can just be free and flow and act without anything's telling us we're not enough, we're not worthy, we're not good enough, we don't have what it takes, all those voices go away in this. And because that turns off, we can literally, whether we're writing, whether we're a musician like jazz improv, whether we're in an activity outside, so you don't have to be a sports enthusiast, although this happens a lot with extreme sports, it could be creative writing, it could be music, it could be any talent where you lose yourself in a state. And when I say that, you all know for as listeners where this happens for you. For me, it happens like when I was with my puppies or hiking in the mountains or riding, or um, I love to rock climb and ride my motorcycle. So some of those things would take me into flow. It also can happen in social settings, like when I'm with a patient and the formula is you uh, get rid of distractions so that iPhone that we all have that has all the apps that notify us. That's the worst interrupter of flow. You want to get rid of those interruptions because you need to be present. Anything that thinks about past or future doesn't work either. You want to have a skill challenge ratio that's about 4% above. This is actually, according to research, above where your, your talent lies. So say you think you can do it at this level. You push yourself just a little bit more, and that will induce a flow state because you need concentration. You need to be in the moment. If it's too hard, you'll give up. If it's too easy, you're bored. So you need to be, you know, present. And again, you can take anything, you take coloring, you can take hiking, you can take surfing and get into that flow state. But where, what happens there, according to the research is we have optimal level of norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, uh, opioids, natural opioids, endorphins. So all of our neurochemistry is in a perfect harmony at optimal states. So it's literally how, and that's why Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi first realized this is like the natural antidepressant. And then Stephen Kotler and this lady who's doing the film are realizing, oh my gosh, I can heal from chronic illness by getting into flow. And we see that a lot when I am working with people that have mast cell or different autoimmune conditions. If you just do a conventional approach, I feel like it can move them forward, but you really need that merged approach where you're bringing in integrative medicine and also possibly like limbic system retraining and different things to help with neuroplasticity so that your body as a whole can move forward. 100%. Absolutely. And really, I think this is a way, another way of getting into neuroplasticity, like changing the brain. 
Um, I just wanted to go back and ask you a little bit more about mold because you are just like the mold expert. And um, I've noticed that working with different clients, I feel like each year I'm seeing people that are having more and more complex cases. Um, And almost everyone that I've seen recently has mast cell activation syndrome. And so I was just kind of wondering from you, um, yeah, how do you move forward with patients that are having not only a high infectious load, but a high environmental load, and then bringing in gut conditions and autoimmune conditions? Where do you start and how do you navigate this process? Yeah, thank you. I was hoping you bring me back to mold because I went off on a tangent there. (laughs) I love talking about mold. So I'll tell you real quickly my journey. So I had healed from cancer and Crohn's, went on to finish medical school. Um, I started in Illinois with a hospital as medical director and the, um, it was just crazy environment because the productivity and work stress was insane. So I moved out to Colorado in 2010, started my own practice for functional medicine. Life was great. I was hiking, I was skiing, I was running, I was back to really good health. And 2013, Boulder had a flood of epidemic proportions. And now with climate change, we're seeing all over the world, these massive floods and hurricanes, and it's just more and more prevalent. And I'm sure like you guys who know about mold, like me, when I see it on the news, I'm like, oh no, they're going to have mold. Like as soon as you hear this big hurricane or whatever, my my heart's like, oh, those people are going to have to deal with water damage, right? So it's more and more common and Boulder was no different. This was I, I actually just recently moved to Colorado and I was looking at places all around Boulder and Boulder County. And um, I was talking to Jeff Bookout, who is an inspector in the Colorado area. So I was like, okay, what are different things that I should look out for? And he brought up like, there was a huge flood in, uh, in 2013. Is that when it was? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he was like, yeah, stay away from this area and gave me different tips and tricks to look out for. But a lot of people think, you know, moving to Colorado, it's a drier environment. You're going to be fine. And I tested a lot of places, even new places, and there were many different issues. So it goes into not only flooding, but also building biology, how materials are made. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a journey, but it has been really nice moving to Colorado. So I'll let you continue. No problem. Welcome to Colorado. And you're right. You. People are so often, even doctors like, oh, there's no Lyme disease in Colorado, right? Or there's no mold in Colorado or Arizona. Not true. But yeah. um, I love that you said that because it really anywhere can happen. And you, even in Arizona, this hot, dry climate, when there's condensation from different temperatures from outdoor, indoor, you know, I could go into the, all those things, but it's very, very common in pretty much everywhere. So this flood happened in the next year, which is typical of mold. Um, I started having shortness of breath, rashes, immune issues, um, brain fog, and I knew something was wrong and it kept getting worse. Finally, I went ahead and I had an inspector come. I was in an older 1970s building and we found bulk stacky batteries in the basement. My office was two levels up. And now looking back, it's so interesting because I didn't know anything about mold. My contractor had redone my office space and he put beautiful new bamboo wood flooring over this old carpet that was probably 20 years old. And then right below my office was an unfinished crawl space with standing water. So it was like the perfect Petri dish for mold. And then the flood came in the basement, which was two levels down, flooded, grew stacky batteries, and it was just an absolute Petri dish. And then I tested my urine and it had the trichosethenes, which matched the stacky. And I knew- You don't want to mess with that one. That that, uh, is probably the most dangerous type of mycotoxin. 
Wow. It is. It was just absolutely. So I, so literally got my mycotoxin results back and was like, oh, it's mold. I never set foot again in my office. I left everything. I know. I don't think everybody has to leave their whole house, but in my case, it was worth leaving the books, leaving the office and starting over. Um, and it was really until I um, scanned the patient charts, which were still paper that I got well, because I took the charts with me, but they still have the toxins mm. and I was still not well. Yeah. My C4A and stuff was high. So I firsthand, and this is just now I know it's my life. I'm the guinea pig. So I had to experience it. But the great thing is, is I dive in and figure it out and then I'm able to help other people. So this was the next level of, of healing. And I had to really figure what, out what was going on. So it was mold. I moved out of my office and I started really trying to understand detox. And I did the glutathione, the binders, all that kind of stuff, infrared sauna. And I always like to frame it because I had a pretty significant exposure and people are always like, how long will it take? Um, I always say six to 18 months. And it took me about wow. eight yeah, it was, it was, it's months. It's, it's even years at times yeah. um, to, to really detox. And for me to, I mean, I was making little progress, but for, to really get back to maybe 80% of normal, it was about 18 months. But Dr. Karnam, before, I just want to read a yeah. little snippet here, because this, this blew me away in your analogy, right? You said mold toxins are devious little gremlins that not only make you sick, but also make it much harder to do the very thing that will make you better. Can you imagine what would happen if dehydration prevented you from feeling thirsty? And you go on to talk about how mold messes with your ability to think logically and make sound decisions, which blew me away. Can you just go into that a little bit? And also before you go on, can you, after that, can you talk about your three experiences at the salon, the church and the kick, kickboxing experience to show how serious exposure to mold can impact a human body? I mean, that blew me away in your book too. I couldn't believe how quickly and rapidly you responded to mold at the salon, the church and the, and the kickboxing studio. It just blew my mind. Oh, I love it. Like you said, you're picking out some of my favorite parts. So the first part, what you're talking about is what I realized is um, even now today, I know mold so well, and I know how to reverse talk about resilience. One of the things that each patients is you may always be sensitive to mold, but what you want to do is find out what for you reverses that quickly and allows you to get back to functioning well. And so now I know I take charcoal because I, I still travel a lot. I go to hotels all the time. I was just in Orlando, moldy hotels. And what we want is to teach the body to, to turn that around quickly, but back to the insight that you read in the book, what happens is at least for me, when we get exposed to mold and many patients have co corroborated this, um, we lose our ability. I, I know mold. I know what it feels like to be exposed. And even now today, sometimes I get confused when I get exposure, like, why do I feel so bad? What's going on? And there's this thing that two things, mold literally takes away that insight, that logical processing where we can understand what's happening in real time. So it's very common, like later, like maybe hours later or the day later, oh, that was mold. Like always I'll know, but in real time, the insight, the understanding of what's happening in real time is very much, very frequently sabotaged. The other piece that is just crazy, and Michelle, you alluded to this earlier, is the limbic activation. Now we know limbic activation. We know mold is traumatic and many people have to deal with the limbic system, which is our amygdala, our fight or flight after mold exposure, because they're terrified of mold. But what you may not know is it's not just like, oh, psychologically it was scary. And I'm like triggered. That's part of it. But this is crazy. There is research. I pulled the paper and I quoted it in my book that shows that literally a chemical inhalation through the brain cribiform plate triggers a limbic response outside of our emotional wellness. So we can be totally therapized and happy and doing all the right work and be, and know that we're fine. And we can know that I'm going to be okay from this mold exposure, but literally there's a chemical bypass that causes a limbic activation that is outside of our control. Now, the good news is we can also 
deal with limbic activation and reprogram because what happens is it gets coupled. This is why so many people after mold exposure are like, you know, the mold avoiders group, no problem with that. It does work, but people are get so afraid they're living outside and, you know, camping because they're so terrified of exposure. And that's part of that limbic loop. So we must actually decouple that and do the work around it. Again, even if you're healthy, happy, emotionally sound and stable, there's a chemical reaction that you can't control and you have to do the work around that limbic activation. So that insight's gone, which makes it tough. And then this limbic activation is part of every chemical inhalation exposure in most of us. So those two things. So the stories you mentioned. So I was uh, Dr. I'm sorry before you go. I just want to I just want to for our listeners because I'm really hoping they're all going to buy your book. On page 166, you talk about the signs and symptoms of mold exposure, which is a really powerful table you gave. Uh, Then on page 172, you highlight steps you can take to prevent mold growth. Then on this is the part that I think that was really powerful. I mean, we've had a lot of people talk to us about limbic system retraining, but you outlined every single one of them in in the most comprehensive list I've ever seen on page 181 for all the limbic retraining suggestions. I mean, that was a really really powerful list. So I just wanted to put that out there for our listeners who are looking to get your book and shortcut to these sections. So I'm sorry, if you can please continue with your stories, because that, that's oh, no, a really cool Pat, part too. Yeah. Amazing. And and thank you for saying that. What what, you, what you're describing, I just want to frame the book. It's a story, right? It's like my story, but in between there's these sidebars and yeah. what you're pulling out is the sidebars. Cause I wanted to do, I want you to have the story that engages you and understand, you know, you get connection and you also know how you can heal, but then I want like, how do we get these practical tips in there? And so what we did is the ones you mentioned, those are sidebars with just real practical information on how to, how to, to get over all these things. So the stories you mentioned, so one, I was kickboxing in this gym and turned out it was moldy and I have parked years underground in my parking garage in my spot, no problem. And right after being exposed to mold, I literally sideswiped my brand new Lexus on a concrete pillar that had been there for years. Like, you know, you should not. And I, I, because your perception of depth is affected by mold. So my depth perception was off and I was like, oh, that was mold. Second one, I was driving home from a salon that had mold again in my notes to me. And it's late at night. So I was a little sleepy, which mold ketomium has a effect on me. I call, I call it the narcoleptic mold. It makes my blood pressure drop. And uh, it makes me very, very sleepy. Like literally I'm like, I gotta lay down now, or I'm going to fault pass out. And I think this was probably a ketomium exposure because I was very sleepy, very disoriented, which is also common with mold. And, um, I'm driving on the highway and there's this flashing lights. Like someone had been pulled over by a cop on the side of the road. And I was so disoriented that I didn't realize they were actually in that first lane I was driving in. I come up on them at like 55 miles an hour on the highway. And I swerve like so violently. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to hit them swerve out of the way. And then, and it's a cop, right. Pulling someone over. So all of a sudden I see the flashing lights in my mirror. Cause she's like, who is this? that just about hit the cop. Right. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, she's going to check on me. Cause I was so nervous about like, what just happened. And I was like, and of course she wasn't checking on me. She was giving me a four point ticket for careless driving, but it was like later. And and there's no way, like, can you imagine? Well, sorry, you know, officer, I just got exposed to ketomium. I'm like not able to think. So I, you know, dealt with it. No big deal, but it was interesting because I was like, oh, that was totally molding and disorientation, fatigue, kind of brain foggy. And I literally almost hit the cop. And then the last one was there was a church I attended in Denver that was, had been remodeled and massive mold issues. And I did know it. And I mean, church is a great place for me. I'm like connected to the divine and like really happy and worshiping and all this. So normally it like brings my mood up every time I come home, I'd be like, 
oh, life is terrible. I can't do this anymore. Everything's overwhelming. I'd be like crying and like feeling depressed. And I'm not a depressed person, but I go into this like depression. And then by the time I got home, I had enough insight to be like, oh, maybe I should take some charcoal. And after about five times of doing that, I realized, oh, that mold exposure. And I go on to talk about like how many people suicide, homicide, like really serious things could be uh, related to this weird brain effect of mold. On that note, I was actually talking to Michelle about this last night was I just couldn't believe in your book, you had a patient that you were helping treat. And I believe the former owners of his home, one of them committed suicide and one of them committed homicide. And you were saying that type of mold that you found in his home was known to show aggression and that type of behavior. Can you just give us more about that? Because I'm not that... Oh, sorry, Michelle. Good. I was gonna wonder: Is it bulimia? Because I notice in a lot of my clients that have suicidal ideation, um, it's their bulimia levels are really high. When I look at their ERMI tests, um, and I see that with certain molds, like you had said, cutonium that can make you really fatigued. But it's really interesting how certain spores, especially the more toxic ones, can really play a role in keying in certain parts of the brain and psychiatric symptoms. Yeah, that it's like it's it's like clockwork. It happens every time. Whenever I see those high levels, I'm like, okay, this is all coming together. This makes sense. Wow. I love that you say that because I kind of talk in the book and I want to write about mold personalities, right? Like as we talk among practitioners and people who see this, I think we could all kind of start to put together a map of the personalities of mold. And Mm -hmm. those are like the ketomium was so clear narcolepsy. I would just be like, I'm out. And it was because of drop in blood pressure. And it also lowers cortisol. I've seen a pattern of lower cortisol with ketomium. So with this story, it was a doctor and her daughter, and they were living in this house that was so toxic and they came to me for help. And later, as we looked at the history of this house, they had this beautiful new um, add-on, but the older part of the house was like hundred years old. And they really went through the history and found out the previous owners, there was a, a homicide and a suicide. And as we talked through it, who knows? Cause I don't even know for sure the case was, I mean, this was like, they came to me after moving out of that house. So I don't know for sure what was in that house as far as molds, but I, we all thought, you know what, I bet you anything it's connected. <laughs> yeah. And like, it makes me wonder, I've actually gone to different like psychologists and therapists office and letting them know about how not only mold, but also Bartonella can create this psych- psychiatric symptom. Um, I've talked to them about like depersonalization and derealization that that's a huge, huge red flag for not only tick-borne infections, but certain types of mold spores. And most people don't think about it. I had moved into an apartment right after college. And I never had depression or anxiety. And then all of a sudden I had severe anxiety that went to depersonalization. And I was like, this isn't me. Like what's, what is happening? And then I finally learned more about integrative medicine and I moved out of my apartment and it started kind of my journey into understanding um, how to get toxins out and just environmental toxins in general. But people don't realize how serious it is and how much it can impact your brain. And even clients that are living in the same home, a lot of times some people will be feel totally fine. And then other people, they're just completely drowning in symptoms. And uh, it's not that it's in their head. It's that, yeah, they have different genetic susceptibilities. They could have past tick-borne infections, um, the HLA-DR gene. So there's just so many components that really play a role in how these mold spores are going to impact your health. Yeah, Michelle, I love that you say that because that's the truth. And also I, I, I postulate, I mean, in a lot of times like courthouses and prisons and schools and, and government buildings are some of the worst. So mm-hmm. it's like how many of our children in schools and how, that are having learning disabilities or how many of our, you know, even, um, you know, people, prisoners who've committed crimes and stuff. I don't want to justify that, but there, I, I think there's a real thing with psychiatric diagnoses. And I no longer really believe that there's any purely psychiatric diagnoses. 
I really, I'm staying that statement and it's controversial. You're the I second believe- person to say, are you saying that you believe all mental health issues are related to some physiological or bacterial or viral or fungal root cause? Yes. Yes. Inflammatory talk. And, you know, I want to frame this here because we kind of uh, touched on it, but it's such a clear frame. The framework I see all this discussion in, in functional medicine is toxic load plus infectious burden. And these two things combine almost every complex chronic illness that I see is toxic load plus infectious burden combining to create immune dysfunction and autoimmune, either overactive or underactive or inflammatory cytokine production. And that creates, you could name any disease or any illness. And most of the time it's this combination. And that's why like tick-borne infection is absolutely huge. I'm such an advocate of treating that, but I always want to check toxic load first, because often, like in my case, it was a toxic load that weighted down the immune system. These old things popped up like Epstein-Barr and Borrelia, Miyamoto and Bartonella and Babesia. And once I started to decrease the toxic load and get back immune function, like this is another thing. And I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on this. I tell people all the time, if we were to detect 10,000 people on the street, walking by no symptoms for Lyme, we'd probably find 30%, maybe more have Lyme disease, but they're okay. They're functioning. They're not having a lot of symptoms. So why are they functioning? Okay. And you're in my office. And that's where the immune system, right? Because the bar of the immune system, if you have a very robust immune system, you can keep some of these old infections, yep. even tick-borne infections in check. That's why like today, the immune system's good. I'm pretty thriving, even though I still have the Lyme and the, all the stuff we talked about. So it's that immune piece that makes the difference. And so if you have mold, you're going to have massive immune suppression. You're probably going to show up with Lyme and Bartonella babesia, anything you've ever been infected by. And do we need to be aggressive at treating those until we get the toxic load down or at least doing them at the same time? I think that's a real core concept. Wow. Yeah. You dropped some good facts in your book. So you say that in a 2005 study showed that an average of 200 chemicals are found in umbilical cord blood of newborns, which is just mind blowing, right? But then you also said that a recent estimate suggests that a few thousand new chemicals are introduced into the year, introduced into the environment every single year. So, I mean, with the with the increased amount of toxins, with the increased amount of, you know, ticks and tick bites and the increased amount of stress that we go through, it's a combination of everything. And why do people, some people get sick and why do some people not? You asked, you know, what are our views on that? My view is it's that that whole toxic bucket theory you described, right? So how many different tick-borne infections do you have? How many times have you been reinfected? What is your stress level like? What other toxins do you have? Heavy metals, mold exposure, all those things that, that can contribute to your toxic bucket. What genetic predispositions do you have? And then you go into the whole autoimmunity component where, and, and I, what I love is you talk about autoimmunity is always genetics plus some sort of environmental trigger, which could be a toxin, it could be an infection. But you said that, most doctors leave out the third piece, which is right. I think it was your gut health, but your gut health is essentially 70% of your immune system. And if you don't address that, you're missing a piece of the puzzle. And I think that for me is kind of how I view chronic Lyme, why some people get really sick and why some people don't. And Michelle, what do you think? I agree. And I also think it's just a testament to how well you've navigated this for yourself. The fact that you got breast cancer in your, in your twenties, like that's really uncommon, but Clearly you had a past of genetic exposures, infections, and, and then you were able to navigate this and you're now so healthy and able to just empower other people. Even when I got sick, like you were one of the first practitioners that I looked into all of your information and I was like, okay, like she had it really difficult and she's able to move forward and have her practice and now help other people. And it's just, yeah, it's really inspiring. Um, and I think it's so important to create this information because I partner with a lot of hospitals that um, are treating people with very severe cases of cancer, 
um, Parkinson's disease, ALS, different types of movement disorders. And so I help with pre and post treatment. And so when I, when I test them, I usually test for tick-borne infections and environmental toxins, and they're always high in tick-borne infections. They're always high in environmental toxins, specifically mold. So the sooner we can get ahead of this, it's just going to be so much better for people dealing with these long-term various, very serious conditions. Oh, Michelle, I love, love what you said there. Cause it's so critical. And, and Matt, I think we're all aligned. Like it's like this, this, this big mishmash and conventional medicine is like, okay, there's one thing you have MS and that's it. And there's no other causes. There's no other thought. And then here's the drug, right? And it's like, no, yeah. no, no, why did that happen? And what's the, what's the things that are playing into the immune system? So I think it's so critical to look deeper. Whenever I teach on environmental toxicity, I always say there's three things that come with an overloaded bucket. One is neurodegenerative diseases, which is MS, Parkinson's, ALS, all these, even just cognitive decline or Alzheimer's. Second is cancer, right? I had breast cancer. Many people get cancer because it's that overload of the immune system being weakened and immune system, natural killer cells is how we fight Lyme and how we fight cancer. And the third thing is autoimmunity. And all three of these things, neurodegenerative diseases, cancer and autoimmunity are massively increasing in incidence because of all the things we're talking about as well. Uh, one thing that you brought up in your book a lot is resilience. I feel like that's a common theme. How were you able to become so resilient? You had like one hit after another, and then you're also working with people that are dealing with really chronic conditions. How are you able to keep on going and keep being resilient? Yeah, great question. And I don't know if anyone has ever asked it quite like that, but I, I think there's this mental fortitude. And I think, I do think there's some people who are born with more of that and others that aren't. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of my German swish, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, like get, so that's the strong part of that. You know, even though that was a highly sensitive person, I had this like, oh, I'm going to overcome. I'm going to like, so there's this will. And I saw it again, my heroes like Victor Frankel and Edith Eager and some of these people that have been through way, 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 way more difficulty than me. I would look to them. I'd read their books. I'd be like crying. I'm like, oh my goodness. They have what I want, right? So, and I find with habits, so whether it's becoming more mentally fortitude or becoming more resilient, habits really stick when we become their our identity. So one of the clues I've learned with habits is like, say you want to, um, so for, oh, I'll give you an example. So I'm gluten-free. I don't eat gluten because of my celiac and I don't smoke, never have, never even touched a cigarette. Those things are who I am. They're not something I do. They're not something I choose. So I don't eat gluten. I don't smoke cigarettes. And no judgment to any of you who do either of those things. But um, because that's my identity, if someone offers me bread, there's no thought, there's no decision making, there's not even, it doesn't even cross my mind. I'm like, no, thank you. I don't, I don't do that because that's who I am. And then smoking, if someone offers me a cigarette, there's no thought of, oh, maybe this time would be fun. It's I don't smoke, that's who I am. So if you want to become more resilient, you can first start by saying, I am resilient. That's who I am. That's a nature, a quality in my identity. And then what happens is, and this works with weight loss or this works with whatever, like I'm a healthy person. So someone offers you a donut, you're like, no, a healthy person wouldn't do that. This is my identity. So for me, the resilience has been part from very young age of my identity. And I'll tell you where that might come from. I had an amazing, amazing family, an amazing childhood, but there was some issues in that environment that were abusive. Not my, you know, personal, I mean, my parents were wonderful. I'm not naming any names, but bottom line is there was a situation when I was very young where I was unprotected and I dealt with something that I couldn't do anything but freeze. And that's my own trauma that I worked through. But what I learned then was this like inside me, I'm like, I am going to freaking overcome. I'd like, I remember five years old, I was like, no one's ever going to hurt me again. 
right? Like no one's ever going to have that ability. I'm going to be strong enough to be able. And that gave me this like will to push through and survive and, and like overcome and know that I could. And it's funny because we think trauma is horrible and, and everybody nowadays is talking trauma and deal with the trauma. I'm a huge fan of dealing with trauma, but I also feel like trauma can be a gift because it, for me was a gift that at five years old created a, a strength, like a rod strength of resilience. Like I am not going to bend. And the funny thing is I'm like very conscientious and kind of soft and kind, and I'm not like an aggressive, I'm not going to be in your face, but inside I am freaking stubborn and I'm strong-willed and I will get through. And then back to the identity, I, I took that on and that's part of me. So then now anything that comes my way and in the beginning, it was hard. I was like, am I going to survive cancer? Am I going to survive Crohn's? But after time, after time, after time of illness, now today I'm 46 years old. And I can tell you, I believe there is nothing that could come my way, even facing death, that I wouldn't be able to get through because I've learned over and over and over again. I have the skills and each one of you listening, I'm not unique. You have it too. Inside of us, we have this ability to overcome. And if we make that part of our identity, it doesn't matter what comes and it may be painful. It may be difficult. It may be something you hate and you don't want to go through. I'm not saying it's easy, but if you have inside of you an identity that knows you will have the tools and the resources in real time for whatever comes your way, you can like boldly show up with confidence knowing there's nothing that's going to take me out. Yeah, on page 206, you have a chart that says the benefits of trauma. And I have to say, a lot of people that read that are going to think, are you kidding me? Yeah. But after I read it, I'm like, wow, every single one of us who has gone through this experience, you know, everybody listening to this podcast has suffered from a volume or tick-borne illness in some form or fashion. We are stronger because of it. And you outline why we are stronger because of that trauma, you know, the, the, the gaslighting, the emotional trauma, the physical trauma, et cetera. But I just want to challenge you on the piece of you being a fighter and a warrior because you, you meant you pull this theme throughout your book about being the warrior princess and you envision yourself as this warrior and this princess and this fighter. But then at the end of your book, you talk about how you had to pivot and change that mindset to a more healing mindset. Can you, can you, can you transition, you know, your, your current argument to, you have to be, you know, have this fighter mindset to how you found the more maybe healthy mindset of balancing that warrior mentality. Yes. I love this because it's so critical. Cause again, this can also be a trauma response that can be helpful to a certain point. So I fought cancer at 25, right? I fought cancer and beat it. Crohn's I'm going to fight this and beat it. And I did. So I had this mentality and then along came mold. I'm going to freaking fight this mold. I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to, I'm going to win. Right. And then one day I'm walking along and I just literally was thinking and praying and meditating. And I had this massive moment of realization. We all know with mold related illness, you have this external toxin and in genetically susceptible individual, this antigen can't really be cleared well in the people who get sick and the antigen being unable to be cleared triggers an immune response and causes cytokine production and inflammation. And your own immune system is actually a lot of what causes the damage. The mold triggers it, but then a lot of the ongoing damages from your immune system, trying to get rid of this and same with Lyme, trying to act on this thing, but it's actually damaging your cells, causing autoimmune attacking self or whatever else. It's just inflammatory. And I had this epiphany that day. I was like, oh my goodness, this fighting is going to kill me because it's internal battle. And if I mentally say, oh, I'm going to fight. So I'm going to fight this. And my body does it. And my immune system fights. It's that fight that sometimes, and it was also right in the beginning of COVID where, you know, you see like a lot of the times where people didn't do well in COVID, it was their own immune system that got overactivated and fought to the death. 
So when I realized that I had just heard a um, story, inspirational story about a man who needed a bone marrow transplant and he went to his doctor's his doctor said, okay, we need this much harvest of your bones of your cells from your bone marrow. And then we'll, you know, put it back in your body, whatever. And he's like, okay, what do I need? And so he went home and meditated every day on how to increase that bone marrow. When he went back, the doctor's like, I don't know what you did, but you have like 10 times the bone marrow cells, you know, white blood cells or whatever they needed that anyone else has ever done. He said, well, I just meditated. So I heard that story. I'm like, well, I can meditate with my immune system. So I, I created this little uh, vision and it was the minions from despicable me, the little yellow guys. I, they were my immune system. And I just imagined them instead of, you know, they're happy and whistling and kind of silly. And I imagined them as my immune system and they were happy and they were like escorting, like here mold, let's go, let's go this way. Let's go out of the body. But they were there was no fight. They were like, uh, coming alongside the mold, escorting it out of the body. And I started meditating every day on the minions and the mold. And, and that was my immune system. And I'll tell you what, I did a lot of things to recover from mold, but I absolutely had a turning point at that point in the year that followed as I meditated on the minions. It was powerful. And the thing you mentioned is before I had literally had this um, mantra, I am Sasha, princess warrior, daughter of the king, worthy of love, conquering all fear, full of joy. Like, and I look back and those are some of the values I hold most dear, my faith and divine connection, um, joy, um, uh, overcoming fear, being strong and resilient and um, resilience, all those things. But again, Sasha was a fighter. She's my alter ego. And I had to like lay down the sword and start to love myself because what happens is in this mentality, you can actually cause again, cognitively and emotionally damage. So I had to really, really learn the thing that probably helped me most in all of my years of overcoming illness was learning to love myself. When I read Gabor Mate's work on how autoimmunity metaphorically is attack of self and self-hatred and self-loathing, I realized there was some truth there. And so I've had to start having this self-compassion practice of really like loving myself, loving my body. And it's funny because I remember back with breast cancer, I was like, oh, my body's betraying me. I was so mad at my body for betraying me. My mind was strong and my stupid body, you know, even saying that now is hard. But then what I did is I was like, oh, sweetheart, you're doing a great job. You're so brave and you're so strong and you've come so far. And I literally talked to myself just like that. And it changed my cells. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, you really have to become a team with your body and move forward mind and body, um, to really get over these very difficult things. Uh, so that's incredibly impressive. I know in your book, you also talked about type C personality. And so it seems like you are more wired towards type C personality, which I'd love you to go over what that is. But I just think having that kind of, um, predisposition, it's even like more impressive that you're like, no, I'm resilient. This is what I'm going to do to move forward and just continue moving forward. Yeah. So type C personality, this was kind of fascinating. Again, Gabor Mate quotes another researcher's work. Um, and in his new book, um, if you haven't read the myth of normal, it's fantastic. And he talks about type C personality again, um, and type C personality. So we have type A, which is the driven, the hard driving, the executive kind of thing. Type B is like laid back, easygoing, getting along with everybody. Type C is very interesting and it's very conscientious, very, it's all these good qualities. And actually for like scale of agreeability and getting along with people and stuff, it's, it's high on those things. It's very agreeable. They don't express a lot of anger or sadness. They don't know really how to express the negative emotions. Um, they're extremely conscientious. They're always putting others ahead of themselves. So these are nice friends and nice people and good things in general. But what happens is that um, lack of expressing healthy anger is actually detrimental. And they've shown melanoma, autoimmunity, 
fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and breast cancer are all, are all more prevalent. And even ALS, uh, Gabor Mate uh, quotes the studies on the ALS, even the nurses treating the ALS, they'd be like, these guys are so nice men and women. I'm saying guys, and that's probably totally mm -hmm. un PC, but these people, these patients are so kind and nice and they're type C, right. And they didn't call them type C, but they started recognizing certain illnesses were high, um, high in the type C personality. So you had talked a lot about how your, um, mindset and different, um, predispositions play a role in health issues. And I want to kind of learn more about treatment wise. So specific with mold, um, there's the whole building biology piece. So making sure that your environment is healthy, looking into like inspecting and remediation and that piece, and then also really treatment wise. So yes, getting your limbic system on board, but what specifically do you do to get these toxins out and also make sure that while you're getting these toxins out, that your patients can handle it because a lot of them are super sensitive. So looking into genetics and, um, and then also looking into mitochondria support, how do you navigate that process when you're working with people that are super sensitive? Yeah. So I'm going to kind of give you a scaffolding or framework of how I look at it. First of all, you can have infection, toxin, heavy metals, all these things. And the first place I go is uh, toxin, because like we said, if toxins affecting the immune system, sometimes not always, but maybe 20, 30% of the time, you don't ever need to be aggressive on treating the infections if their immune system comes back online. So I always start there. That's yep. toxic load. And first thing is limbic system, which we talked about. So you always want to address, and you can do that simultaneously with starting with mast cells, which I know Michelle is your area of expertise, but um, mast cell, you have to address in some form limbic and mast cell, because those are the things that will prevent you getting anywhere with treatment of mold if they're both active. So limbic system, you're just going to have fear and people are afraid to try new things or afraid to, you know, sleep inside in an indoors, whatever. So limbic system, you can start mast cell. You want to use, and again, Michelle, you're an expert, so feel free to add, but natural antihistamines like quercetin. I love Chinese skullcap, luteolin, um, vitamin C, all those things are amazing. And then prescriptions, I'll use H1 blockers, H2 blockers, mast cell stabilizers. A real favorite is catadophen, which is a compounded mast cell stabilizer, very effective. And you can layer those. And sometimes you need a lot of things to layer to get that under control, but those come first, then the mold. And the mold is all about, um, basically mobilizing toxins out of the tissues where they've been stored and then excretion and mobilization includes things like glutathione and acetylcysteine, lipoic acid, milk, this anything to help the body uh, phase one and phase two, of the liver, take these toxins and start to excrete them into the bile where they're stored. Now the bile is about 95% efficient with its reabsorption. So you have to interrupt that bile reabsorption because otherwise you just have a merry-go-round of toxins going through the gut and how you can um, interrupt that flow is you can use binders. There's prescription binders like Wellcol and Colostyramine. Even though Shoemaker made these popular, I don't use a lot of prescription binders. Once in a while, Wellcol works, but I do. I rarely use Colostyramine. I feel like it's so aggressive and such a strong binder of other things. People have gut disruption. Don't, don't it also only gets at overtoxin. So like there oh, are a lot of other binders that have like activated charcoal and bentonite clay and zeolite. So you can take one type of binder with a lot of different agents in it and get multiple different mycotoxins and are less constipating and have less, a lot less side effects. 
100% agree. And I love the combination because like you said, each of these have a slightly different electrostatic charge. And now Neil Nathan's work and some of the charts we have out there, we can look at mycotoxin specifically. Like you said, ochre toxin, um, cholesterol is great. But if you have stachybotrys, trichosethenes, or some of those other nasty toxins, charcoal's best. So, um, and in my history, charcoal was my favorite. Still to this day, if I travel, charcoal is my go-to. But charcoal, clay, zeolite, glycomannans, chlorella, I could name a bunch of other, even just fibers from foods can be helpful. Um, so all okra, okra is a thing of food, obviously. So all of these, then you use binders. So you use the glutathione to push the, mobilize the toxins out of the liver, out of the tissues into the bile. And then you use um, some sort of binder to pull it out through the gut. And you want to, while you're doing that, make sure you have electrolytes, make sure you're hydrated, all the basics there. It's all about balance. Yeah. Yeah. And then things like infrared sauna are really powerful mobilizers of toxins, dry brushing, lymphatic drainage remedies and lymphatic massage. And I love Epsom salt baths. Um, there's so many things you can use that will start to help mobilize from the tissues. And if you're mobilizing too quickly, these are the people who get hives or get sick or don't do well because you have to excrete and excretions. I think a little bit more tricky because it usually involves more than naturopathic things like um, colon hydrotherapy or coffee enemas or mm -hmm. castor oil packs or um, dry brushing, some of these things that actually stimulate lymphatic drainage. Mm -hmm. I think Michelle, you bring up, sorry, I'm sorry, just going to jump in. I just want to take a point because as, as a non-medical professional and a non-genius like you, Michelle, I'm sitting here like, wow, this is a lot, right? So everybody listening, I feel like it's so cool to hear you guys geeking out over this because here are two professionals that our listeners can partner with, either you, Dr. Carnett, or you, Michelle, to get some help in this process, because it can seem very overwhelming to hear all this. I mean, you guys just rapid fire gave us so much good information. But the cool part is we have functional doctors and, and, and experts like you guys to help along with this process. I, so I, I, if anybody listening feels overwhelmed, I did as well. And I just want to point out there are professionals like Michelle and like Dr. Carnett to help you through this journey. And it isn't as scary as it may seem. So I'm sorry, Michelle, I just wanted to put that little plug in there. Yeah, no, I, the mold world is an incredibly overwhelming world for so many different reasons and has so many different layers. Not only does it impact your brain because it's causing inflammation in your brain, but it also can impact your relationships and it's expensive. So it impacts your finances and it's super misunderstood. People don't understand mold. So when you're saying like, Hey, I'm having a reaction to mold. They're like, okay, like it's right. fine. Like molds everywhere. And it's like, no, this is actually really serious. Like I can't function. Um, so yeah, for those of you who are listening and that are going through this and are feeling very overwhelmed, there is a path moving forward. There's tests that you can do on your home to see like, is your environment an issue? And then you can do tests on your body to align up. Okay. Those mold spores from my home actually are aligning with the mycotoxins in my body. Mold spores create mycotoxins, which is what we breathe in. And that causes more inflammation and gut issues and a multiple of other issues. So there is a path to moving forward and then figuring out the logistics of exactly what Dr. Carnahan said, stabilizing your mast cells, getting these toxins out, doing it in a way that's supportive of your system. And there's so many different ways supporting your lymph system, your kidney, your liver, all of these different pathways need to get moving before you put in the binder so that it's not circulating throughout your system, so you're able to get out of your system. And then really repairing and supporting your mitochondria. Your mitochondria takes a huge hit. It's what um, creates ATP. It's what creates energy. So if you're feeling very fatigued from different types of mold spores, let's, let's get these mold spores out of your system, but then also let's support your mitochondria so that you can move forward, also support your limbic system and uh, 
yeah, there's, there's so many different components in the recovery process, but there are ways to move you forward, um, to feel hopeful about getting over this. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to talk about Burke and Alyssa from the book, because they were your extreme chronic Lyme case. So Dr. Carney, can you quickly just, not, you don't have to be quickly, but can you talk about Burke and Alyssa? And when I read the book and you sent them to a clinic in Germany, I was like, hmm, I wonder where that was. So can you tell us their story and where exactly you sent them in Germany for, for Burke's treatment? Yeah. So, um, and it's interesting because this particular couple I've known for probably 12 years, ever since I've, I've really been one of my longest standing people and they're doing so well, or Burke is the patient. Um, and again, they have permission to share their story. I just want to mention too, because some people may read the book and we did film the documentary last year and it's still in the process of being submitted to film festivals. But I just want to mention because Burke and Alyssa are featured in there, their story, you see them, you hear them, like their story is there in the documentary. And it's, if you want to just stay tuned as far as where it's going to be playing, um, I'm, we're hoping to have, I'll be sure and let your listeners know, I think this summer in Colorado, hopefully have a screening. So we don't know yet, but Dr. Amazing movie.com. So drpatientmovie.com is the documentary. And it's a lot of my journey, but it's these patients. And, you know, the two main stories are in this documentary, Ryan Sutter, who you may know, Tristan Ryan from The Bachelor and Burke and Alyssa. And they're, it's funny because I do a lot of different cases, right? Two of the main cases in the documentary are Lyme. So it's very relevant to your community. So stay wow. tuned. I can't tell you where it'll all be playing yet, but we will see it. So just, I wanted to mention that because- well, please keep us posted. Yeah. We'll be sure to share it and let all of our listeners know as well. So we'll, we'll yeah. definitely get that out there when the time comes. Yeah, so Burke and Alyssa. So um, Burke was diagnosed and he was at 16 years old having horrendous ulcerations on his mouth. I suspect it was probably either a form of Bartonella or either Epstein-Barr or something that was reactivated. And literally his whole entire mouth and esophagus was ulcerated. He couldn't eat. He was, he was he's a six- Six one at 16 and he was 115 pounds if you can imagine like completely his dad had to carry him to children's hospital so i mean he was so sick i did not meet him till 35 maybe 20 years suffering from lyme no one diagnosed him he kind of gave up hope he met his wife Alyssa, and that's part of the beautiful story is she like believed in him she was his advocate she's like we're going to find answers but like decades decades of suffering and you guys know this because of so many people with lyme get misdiagnosed or get ignored, or they don't get diagnosed at all. And finally he came to see me. And I right away, as you, you guys know, when you hear the stories and it's like, Burke, I think I know what this is. We got to test you for Lyme disease. And after kind of, you know, like, Oh, are you sure? Well, we already did a Western blot on lab corn. It was negative. Right. <laughs> so, and the bottom line is absolutely. It was Lyme and co-infections, no surprise to any of us. And so he, we did a lot of healing. He did made some progress, the ulcerations healed all that, but then he ended up going to Germany to get the hyperthermia and IVs and some pretty aggressive therapy. And he is doing amazing. I mean, he's a very successful, you know, um, family and, and everything. He also didn't think he'd have children. They have two beautiful children. Wow. Um, That's amazing. I, I actually partner with hospitals that offer hyperthermia treatment. I had a really bad case of Lyme disease when I was younger. And so about a little over 10 years ago, I went for hyperthermia treatment and that was the first treatment that helped to move me forward. And then I started getting into integrative medicine and that's where I learned about detoxing and mold and uh, mitochondria and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, there are so many different modalities to give people hope and moving forward when you've tried so many different things, have gone to so many different doctors and uh, just to not lose hope because there are really great treatments out there. Was it Clinic St. George for both of you? I went to, I went to Clinic St. George. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure where they went, but 
It's interesting because back again, this was almost a decade ago and the name changed in the newest. So I don't even know what now um, I can get that for you to share with listeners, but I don't off the top of my head know what the new name of it was. Yeah, that's wild. Um, I do want to take a, a quick point because I know I want to do this earlier on, but you start your book off by talking about Alex Hudson and Jody Hudson. And unfortunately, it was too late. But my promise to Alex, which is the book she came out with recently, and Jody Hudson, the mom of Alex Hudson, now has the Alex Hudson Lyme Foundation. And we've interviewed her on this podcast on episode 281. And it's a really sad story of mast cell activation syndrome and an extreme case of just being allergic to everything and, and being inflamed to everything. I mean, even the even the being next to an outlet, an electrical outlet and, and, and a router and a phone, I mean, everything set her off. Can you just talk about that? Because I don't think people understand how serious MCAS can be, even though there may be other root causes or triggers for MCAS, that in itself can be extremely dangerous and potentially life-threatening, like in the case of, of Alex. Yeah. So obviously your listeners know from that episode. So Alex came to me and unfortunately she had, I think she'd been to 40 some doctors and when she finally came to me and it was, I mean, she was really, really sick and suffering. And what I remember most about that visit was just sitting there in flow and just listening and wanting to cry with her and like all that she'd suffered. And, and I never, ever give up hope. So even at that first visit, I thought, well, maybe there's a possibility, but as I saw her over the next several months, she was in crisis and she was really, really severe, so severely malnourished. Her gut was rejecting everything. She had to give IV nutrition and in the pro, um, the uh, prologue, she ends up, she died, she died in her twenties and that's, but I, I wanted to put that in there. Number one, for people to realize that these complex chronic things can be deadly, even in young, healthy people that should never die that young. Number two, I wanted to show the humanity of my skills and the fact that I can't save everybody, you know, and I want to, and I would love to, and I think I'm a pretty good doctor, but there's still, and just that humanity of like, we're not miracle workers and people still suffer and they still die. And I wanted to be so real with that. Cause that to me is so hard because I want to help everybody and I can't. And in this case, but what happened in that visit was we talked about all kinds of things. And one of the things in my intake form is, do you have a greater sense of purpose or something? Just so I can find out where you get your strength. And she said, God for her. So I said, well, could I pray with you? And I just, you know, like kind of said a really simple, and I don't normally do that unless the patient asks or they put it on their form. Right. But she, in this case, it was perfectly appropriate. And she asked, and then it was more like just this blessing of like, can there be purpose or meaning even in the midst of the darkest times? And something in her shifted in that visit to where she was looking to like, okay, what if I don't make it? What can I do? And she's with her mother started the Lyme Foundation to help people to prevent the misdiagnosis that happened to her. So I love that story because it transcends life. And the truth is we're all terminal, right? So no matter if we go overcome illness right now, at some point we're going to face that. And so like, how can we really think about our life in that bigger picture, that greater purpose? And we know now that the science actually backs greater purpose and meaning with Dan Buettner's work in the uh, blue zones. One of the most important things about these centigenarians that live to over hundred years old is greater purpose and meaning. And for Alex, that was so evident because she didn't make it, but she had this thing that surpassed her life and has impacted now thousands of other people. And I think that's also really important to show just how serious mast cell activation can be. Um, I think that within the past few years with COVID bringing out so many more people with mast cell and then also staying inside your homes because of, um, you know, not being able to go out because of COVID. If your home has a mold issue, that can create mast cell. It is such a problem and we have a long ways to go in creating awareness for it. But a lot of people will kind of think like, okay, you're you know, like just go inside the house or like, I don't see any mold. So what are you reacting to? And it 
it can create pretty anaphylactic and pretty serious symptoms. So really just bring the point of um, taking it seriously and uh, yeah, acknowledging that. Yeah, I also want to just make a note because I know I was in a, in a state of fight or flight for quite a while and I was afraid of everything, right? It, it, it severely impacted my ability to make sound decisions when I was at my worst. And if I were listening to this part, Dr. Carnan, when you said, look, some people are terminal, some people, you know, you, you were being humble, but I just want to make, I just want to point out that there are, I mean, you are a brilliant doctor, right? I mean, you are just, you were, you were so smart, but how would you, how would you address people that are listening to this podcast that are in fight or flight that may have been triggered by that statement? You know, how would you counter that? Because like, depending on where we're at in our journey, some of us can process that and not be triggered. Others may be triggered, right? So I just want to address that topic of depending on where we're at in our healing journeys, we do know that certain things will trigger our fear and put us deeper into fight or flight. So how do you, can you, can you address that a little bit, you know? Yeah. So this is such a great question because not everybody, we're all in different trajectories and we're all in different places with, and this is probably, I don't think there's any greater fear than when am I going to die? How am I, I mean, this is a big deal to all of us. Um, and this is where I think having that something greater than yourself, either a purpose, a mission, a meaning, a divine connection. And it can be anything because I don't have any sort of agenda for you. And I have a personal faith, but it could look any way or no faith at all. It doesn't have to be faith, but it has something that transcends our mortality, our life. And if we can kind of find that and hone in on that, and some people it's like saving the animal, saving the whale, saving the climate, saving the trees. Some people it's like, for me, he, I'm a healer. So I want to help as many people to heal mind, body, spirit in my lifetime as possible. I want to inspire people. That's my purpose and meaning. Um, other people, it might be um, some project that they want to finish, like writing down data and collecting data for this thing that, but if we just have a very limited scope and we don't think outside of ourselves, it it is scary. And there's no way to make it unscary. Um, but if we can have this transcendence, almost like if we're flying over our life and looking at it on a timeline and looking at the much bigger, cause we're in the day to day, we're like right here, right now, that's all we see. But if we could pull ourselves above and watch ourselves and say, okay, look how far I've come. Look what I've learned in this process. Look where I'm headed. Where do I want to go? And many people in midlife have this kind of crisis. It's all about this transcendence. Like, what is my purpose? Have I done what I'm here to do? Half my life's over. So those questions, like just getting real. And for me, I journal, I don't have all the answers, but sometimes I'll just let my talk about flow states. You can let yourself green light and just journal with no judge. So you want to go into the transient hypofrontality and let yourself just flow because often your subconscious will bring up things. And usually when we kind of go to the places where we're most afraid and we're kind to ourselves and loving ourselves in those spaces, that's when we can kind of shift and have transformation. And it's still going to be hard to deal with facing death. I think what is also helpful to, um, if you're going through a very difficult struggle, a lot of times if you go to a doctor, it's like, I, I don't know what's going on or like you're depressed, um, with you, you're very realistic and, and, um, you're optimistic, but also very realistic. So you're looking at these very complex cases and you're able to think very abstractly and analytically. And then you're also using the more intuitive side. So it just gives at least when I was going through it and I would listen to a lot of your videos, it would give me so much hope because I needed like that analytical side, but I also was like, no, intuitively, I know this is the right way for me. So it just, it really helps people along this journey. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I want in your book, you talk about how, nor, you know, neural scanning technology is now showing that fear is one of the most primal and powerful emotions. 
it creates ingrained neural pathways in the brain. And these pathways become like deeply woven grooves that are easily easy to fall back into. And I think it's really important because for me, I, it, I can relate to that where you really don't experience fear until you get triggered into that state of fear. And then it's easy to fall back into it. Right. And it's kind of like you mentioned with mold. Once you had your mold crisis, it's more, much more easy to fall back into mold exposure. And I think once we become sensitive to something, we have to be much more aware of those triggers. Right. And then of course, flow is one good recommendation to help get out of this fear state and to help these brain pathways. And then of course, neuroplasticity, which we talked about, we talked about, you have it all featured in your book as well. But I think the good news is there are a lot of techniques to help ourselves overcome that fear state. And it's not permanent, right? And I think that's the most that's the most hopeful message I took out of your book is that none of this is permanent. And you talk about, you know, chronic illness and how how people just write everybody off in the chronic illness community. But just because there isn't a one, what do you call it? A one pill solution is, I'm not saying it right. You have a term for that in your book. Um, uh, the one pill, I, I forget what it is, but you know, there's no magic, there's no magic pill to cure you. But that doesn't mean we can't get you better. And I think that's something, too, that a lot of regular doctors miss out on. And you talk about it in your book. But I do want to I do want to talk about the emotional piece of this. I know we're, we're getting really tight on time. My last part is you're very open and vulnerable in your book about your personal relationships, right, with your ex-husband and then your boyfriend afterwards and how your health impacted your relationships and how you were totally taken aback when your ex-husband yeah. divorced you, right? So can you talk about the impact that chronic illness has on personal relationships and how you overcame that trauma as well? Because that sounded devastating. And yet here you are today, vibrant, smiling, happy. And you've had a lot, to Michelle's point, I mean, cancer, Crohn's, you know, mold, Lyme and a whole bunch of co-infections, all kinds of relationship issues. You had trauma at a young age. And here you are like the happiest, healthiest person we've seen on this podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, so it's interesting because this is where I, years ago, I thought, oh, I'm going to write a book on environmental toxicity. And then I went through divorce and some difficult relationships. And I was like, oh, we need to go environmental toxicity, emotional toxicity, childhood trauma, relational toxicity, like all of these things affect us. And it's actually maybe sometimes most important the people we, family members, people we live with, if those things are toxic, there's no amount of glutathione that's going to help that, right? And my understanding here, I am like a successful professional woman. And I had this aha because I realized there's a lot of women out there like me, men too, but talking to women particularly, because that's who I am, um, that maybe have it all together in the professional world. They've worked their heart really hard. They're successful, but their relationships are not so good. And maybe they're that type C that's afraid to speak up, or maybe they're staying in a toxic or unhealthy relationship, or maybe they're just unaware or suppressing all these things happen. And my aha was I could look like I have it all together on the outside successful, but if my relationships aren't healthy, my body and my mind and my body, my health isn't healthy. Right. So I realized, Ooh, we have to deal with this too. And just like always, I'm a Guinea pig. So I went through a very difficult divorce and my divorce, there's no doubt we would say I'm actually good friends with my ex-husband now and everything has resolved because I always say it's like we were two ch children with trauma that hadn't dealt with it. And that's why things blew up. And it's interesting. My marriage blew up after about 20 years, right in the worst of the mold exposure. And I have no doubt that the mold affected both of us and affected our brains and ability to really communicate. I think the mold was, I'm not going to blame the mold, right? It's us and our issues, but at a deeper level, that toxic load on my brain and his brain had a mass and he had Lyme too 
massive, massive, massive effect on our relationship. We'll both say that today. I'm like, oh my goodness, look how dysfunctional we were. So we have to heal these parts. And what, what's going to happen is we're going to keep going back to the same types of relationships that are unhealthy, whether it's the narcissist, empath, or any sort of form of dysfunction until we heal ourselves. And we never have control over the other person in the relationship. All we have control over is ourselves. So when I had, went through the divorce, and it was difficult that what I ended up doing that really transformed my life was saying, okay, what about me? I can't point fingers. I could point fingers, but that's not going to help. What is my issue? What can I do differently? How can I deal with my trauma? And I went really deep and did a lot of work. And I, once again, once I transformed that, I never attracted the same type of men. It really transformed my relationships too. Michelle, do you have any more questions? I know we're getting really tight on time, but do you have any any burning questions we have to ask before we end it? Yeah, I just wanted to know um, for people that are really in the thick of it, what would be your um, one word of advice to help them get through it or give them some hope? Yes. Okay. You talked about fear earlier and this is kind of again, that intuitive level that I think maybe it may be sound trite, but it's probably the most powerful. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. And so when we want it, when we have fear, or we're in the midst of this and we're afraid, we're overwhelmed, these, these negative emotions, nothing wrong with that. And like I learned, like we talked about, you want to feel those, let them flow through your body, but you don't want to stay there. And the antidote to fear is love. And you're like, oh, Jill, this is all happy bullshit. You know, right? like it doesn't really work, but I'm telling you, when you start to have self-compassion and you truly love yourself and you show kindness and compassion, even when you mess up or you don't do things right, or you're not healing those, the emotion of love and gratitude are the most powerful things to transform us at a cellular level. So whatever that practice looks like for you to unconditionally love yourself first and then shine it to others around you. And often when you're in the midst of the darkest times, when you feel like you can barely get out of bed, if you can find some way to love someone else, and it might be just a phone call because you can barely walk out the door, or it might be just a, a note. It might be the simple text, something very simple because you maybe can't even get out there to help someone. When you take the focus off yourself and your suffering and start to love someone else, something happens there because you get joy and it feeds your soul. And then all of a sudden you want to do more. You want to get out of bed. And again, this may sound trite, but I really believe that unconditional love is the antidote to fear. And if you're wondering what to do, where to go, you're not sure. And you're like, I don't even know if I have intuition. Here's an easy trick. Things that expand you. If you close your eyes, put your heart on your, your hand on your heart and your belly. And you just think, okay, does this decision, this relationship, this choice, this treatment, does this feel expansive or does this feel contractive in my body? That's a great way to make a good decision about what way to go. And it's easy. We can all kind of start to feel into, does this expand me or contract me? Wow. Dr. Carnan, I just want to give everybody a quick shout out to how to find you and Michelle, right? So your website is jillcarnahan.com. You're on Instagram with your handle Dr. Jill Carnahan. So that's Dr. Jill Carnahan. You're on Facebook as Flatiron Functional Medicine, which is the name of your practice, right? Flatiron Functional Medicine. And Michelle, of course, our listeners know, but in case they forget, her website is thelimespecialist.com and her Instagram handle is thelimespecialist. And I just want to tell you, Dr. Carnahan, I had a discussion with Rich last night privately and I said to him, you know, whenever I'm really excited about a podcast, I'm usually disappointed because my expectations are so high and I'm worried that's going to happen to Dr. Carnahan. I loved her book. I'm just really excited about it. But I can confidently say on the air that you exceeded my expectations, which I did not think was going to be possible. I mean, this was just a brilliant interview. You were amazing. Your energy, your life, 
your your attitude towards everything and your knowledge just was amazing. And Michelle, you were amazing as well. I can't thank the two of you enough, Dr. Carnahan and Michelle, for coming on the Tiku Kim podcast and sharing your journeys and helping people in the chronic Lyme community. Thank you both so much. You're welcome. And thank you both for taking your journeys and transforming lives as well. You're out there just like me. And I'm so grateful that we're all in this together. <laughs>